Yeah. And I think, you know, it's to your point earlier, like, I think we often, like, we don't know where to start. Right. And, and I think that's where a lot of the research that's been done kind of gives us a platform, the stuff that stood the test of time, like efficacy, purpose, and control, you know, those are three needs that just bubble to the surface over and over and over again, over, you know, the past 70 years. Right. So of, of like research. So, okay, we know these are important. So if folks just literally focus on those three things and, and, and ref, to your point, you know, get a pad and pen, you know, out and, and really start to reflect on what those mean. And then, you know, kind of building, you know, behaviors and, and habits that enable you to fulfill those needs. Then all of a sudden, like life kind of corrects itself, right? Like, you, you know, you start to just feel like you have some direction and you have purpose and you have some control. And, you know, those are psychological needs that are, are being met on, on a daily and, you know, things start to, to feel pretty good. And you just minimize that, that tension internally that can, yeah. that can manifest when we're not really certain what we should be focused on. And I guess that's the opportunity here is, is really using research on the physiological side, on the psychological side to really understand, you know, what are the things that we just need to focus on, right? That are really going to move the needle yeah. um, for me. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever our curiosity takes us. It is through conversations like what you're about to hear that we provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life. And without further ado, Let's introduce today's guest. In today's episode, we are joined by Kristen Holmes. As Vice President of Performance Science at Whoop, Kristen drives thought leadership by engaging with industry-leading researchers and partners to better understand individual and team biometric and performance data. Kristen also works with hundreds of the best tactical, professional, surgical, and NCAA athletes and teams in the world, helping them interpret Whoop data to optimize their training, recovery, and sleep behavior. Kristen was a three-time All-American, two-time Big Ten Athlete of the Year, and at the University of Iowa, competing in both field hockey and basketball. Seven-year member of the U.S. National Field Hockey Team, and one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history, having won 12 league titles in 13 seasons in a national championship at Princeton University. I'm really excited to bring this conversation with Kristen Holmes. And as many of you know, longtime listeners... I've been a Whoop user for over a year now, and actually probably really close to two years. And it's been a really fun thing for me to talk about this performance data and tracking your own metrics. And I know that many people don't really feel the need to use wearables at, like this at this time. But given the unique situation of this pandemic to date this conversation, I, I believe these devices have even more power to give users feedback about how their body is responding to not only stress that is precipitated by this pandemic, but also we can look inside our bodies, as Kristen alludes to in research, about respiratory rate as it relates to the, the virus in just actually lower respiratory infections in general. And not only that, but we just really get into the behaviors and, and different sorts of things that are all interrelated. We close out this podcast on psychophysiology, which have been added to the Whoop Journal as we recorded this, which they ask you a subjective questions on efficacy, control, 
and purpose in your life? And you answer this question on a daily basis. And this is where my meaning frameworks and how to create behavior patterns and routines to allow you to function best in your life as you see fit. And so there's just so much to take away from this here. And many times I go through this podcast and I, and I get a little worried, but every time I come back and I listen to the conversation again, when I'm about to release these episodes, I find they're even packed more with things that are still relevant for people to hopefully live better. And I find myself digging into more afterwards myself or checking in with myself at the very least to say, hey, am I still doing these things that either I said or that maybe Kristen brings up? Please enjoy this conversation with Kristen Holmes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. And today's guest is Kristen Holmes of Whoop. Hi there. How are you? This is awesome. And I'm really excited to just sit here and talk to you about not only wearables and Whoop, but just kind of broadly speaking, how we can use technology to help further our quality of life. And given the context of this whole pandemic, where, I mean, especially given the context that we all have to wear masks now, when we go to any public place, I think having a wearable technology that can give you insights onto how your body's responding Mm -hmm. at a health level is, is really interesting. And you're, so you're the director of performance. Did I get that right? So I'm the, yeah, the vice president of performance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you have a a long history in sports being one of the, the most, am I correct there (laughs) was the most championships for field hockey? Yeah, we, we, we did a, a lot of winning. Yeah. So we, we won, uh, in my 13 seasons, we won 12 Ivy league championships and a national championship at Princeton university. Cool. Yeah. I just want to highlight a little bit about your background before we kind of dive into the research that you've been doing, because I know you through the Whoop podcast and things like that. So I, I know a little bit more about your background than maybe the average person. So yeah. that's all. if there's anything else, like how did you get into the wearable space? Like obviously you were an athlete or was interested yeah. in sports for a very long time. But the idea, I think, of like recovery being a huge metric now is not is more relevant today than it ever has been. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been relevant. We just didn't know how to quantify, you know, how we were adapting to stress, right? So, and I and I think we were, you know, we we kind of thought about it in, you know, from I think a too too narrow of a of a lens, in that we would just look at training stress and then try to map recovery with training stress. Where I think one of the things that became really obvious to me as as a as a athlete, you know, competing for the U S and then, you know, as a collegiate athlete and then, and then kind of going into coaching, I recognized pretty quickly that, you know, training stress, you know, that's happening in a, you know, two to four hour block of time is not necessarily predictive of your capacity tomorrow. And, Mm -hmm. and I think the notion that there are so many factors that actually influence recovery is really, is really, I think where the evolution has taken place in terms of our, our broader understanding of, of what, you know, what, what are the factors that actually go into adaptive, you know, into your adaptation. And it's, you know, it's how you sleep, it's how you eat, it's how you hydrate. It's really how you're spending the other 22 to 21 hours of the day outside of training that are actually most influential on your next day capacity. So it's really, I think this notion of, of recovery is, is just this, 
the opportunity is to to really look at it from this 24/7 lens, you know, and and, and that's essentially what Whoop helps wrestle to the ground is is really giving you a super holistic picture of how your body is trending and tracking across these metrics that are really great estimators of of your kind of mental and physical uh, capacity, you know, and resting heart rate and heart rate variability and and obviously how we how we quantify sleep. And, and it's a really interesting topic for me because when I had first started getting into like what are the metrics behind this? I, I'm a huge podcast listener, so I was listening to a lot of health and wellness people, Peter T, a lot of other doctors within like the ketogenic sphere, like Dom D'Agostino and other people. Yeah. And so one of the things that kept coming up around some of their research was like the metric of HRV. Right. At the time, it was probably like two two years ago or so, but there wasn't a whole lot about what it meant. Like there are some people saying like training of HRV, like using it as like a meditative practice for, I think it was Josh Waskins actually, who mm-hmm. was kind of into it and yeah. trying to use it as a metric to be able to control his, how his body responds in stressful situations, being a top competitor. And I was like, that's really interesting. I've never heard of that before. And as like I said before, as like as an engineer, I was really interested in it because I started looking at like, how do you measure that? And you know, it's a root mean square, which is you see that all of the time in electronics. So I was like, whoa, this is right up my alley. And so if you can go ahead and explain in the simplest way, because I know I've yeah. tried HRV, but it's something that I've only gotten good at explaining because I've just tried to wrap my head around it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely, uh, it feels really abstract and and there's a lot of factors that kind of influence your heart rate variability. So it can, it can feel hard to understand, but I, I guess the, the best way to explain it is that heart rate variability is a function of the heart, but it originates in the autonomic nervous system. And your autonomic nervous system has two branches. It has the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic branch. And I guess imagine that these two branches are both competing to send signals to your heart the more recovered you are, the more receptive your heart is gonna be to both inputs of the autonomic nervous system, okay? And that will yield higher variability, okay? So if you think about heart variability is really the interval, it's a measurement of time, it's the interval of time between kind of your, your heartbeat. So the more variability between you know heartbeats, mm-hmm. the more capable you will be of adapting to demands in your environment. Okay, the less variable, the less recovered you are, okay, the um, less able you'll be uh, to adapt to the demands of your environment. Yeah. I think Is that sufficient? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's a great way of explaining it. And it's not normally the way I would, I normally tend to explain it is, is because I go to the math more often than anything else. And I, I think that should help people understand it. And I'll always have links in the show notes so people can go understand and peruse it further because I think it's one of the things that you won't be able to like wake up in the morning and say, oh yeah, my HRV feels high today or low today or something like that. It's not. Yeah. Well, I I think that, well, there, I think that's where quantification can be, you know, being able to quantify to, to know actually what's happening in, internally, like your, your psychological state or your perception of how you feel might not actually be in line with what is actually happening internally. Yeah. So having, having insight into, to, to, to actually what your heart variability is, or, you know, kind of this recovery picture can really help you inform how you approach your day. You know, if, if you're, you know, if you don't have, you know, this kind of a, adaptive energy available, you might 
change your volume intensity slightly, you know, and, and I think trends are more important to look at than in single day values, but you know, or you're like, okay, you know, I'm a little less recovered today. My body's telling me something that I might not necessarily feel yet, but gosh, I'm going to, you know, really focus on my hydration. I'm going to do, you know, spend some extra time meditating today. I'm just going to really take care of myself, you know, and, and change my situation. Right. Like it just, it really empowers from my viewpoint. Like, I I just think I want to know the truth of what's happening. Like I'm not, I don't, you know, and I think people who are scared of, of data are, are generally, you know, not interested in the truth, frankly. So I know that's a harsh, that's a little a bit of a harsh vantage point, but, but I, you know, I think there's something, you know, you don't have to be obsessive about it and, and there's no reason to be anxious, but, you know, but, but I think knowing how you're trending and tracking is information that enables you to take action, right? Like it, it puts you in a position of power to have agency over your own health and wellness. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's the opportunity that this data provides, you know, it, obviously it needs to be accurate and, and needs to have be, you know, have valid measurement and, you know, it needs to be scientific, scientifically validated so you can trust the information you're getting. But I think once all those boxes are checked, then, you know, it's, it's really, really important. I think at a, at a, you know, high level to understand how your body's responding to external stress. Yeah. And I think you hit on a whole bunch of points at why this is relevant for not just people who are interested, you know, whoop is designed for elite, more like performers and athletes with the strain metric being able to, you know, it's not a step counter basically. And, you know, for, for lack of a better term steps, if you already are active at a minimum steps are useless, at least in my view. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get the same credit. If I, you know, two years ago, if I'm taking 10,000 steps and I'm still taking 10,000 steps today, like I shouldn't get the same credit as I did two years ago if I'm like, if I've actually gotten fitter, you know what I mean? Like it, it's really, it is, yeah. I mean, and, and there's, there's absolutely no research to back up anything related to 10,000 steps, but yeah, I think understanding your cardiovascular load and, and how your heart is responding to, to activity. I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's the gold standard that we need to be right. thinking about. Yeah. And, and that was one of the big reasons why the, along with HRV, but also with the reason that the band is is there just as technology that works for you, not the other way around, where it wants to take your attention, like a lot of the other fitness trackers out there. When when I was first doing this stuff, I was really starting to get mindful of like our phones being dopamine drips and like constantly notifying us and all of that the psychology that gets wrapped into it, where it's just constantly distracting you or making you interact with them when they want you to not when you want it to so true and so i was i you know i went through and basically turned off 90 percent of notifications except for like phone calls and text messages yeah but then whoop comes along and i'm like oh my god here's this here's this device that's just passively reading things it doesn't have a screen on it it doesn't send you notifications right and you just check it you know once or twice a day you know once for the morning and then once when you go to your workout to make sure you're you know in line with stuff and yep. that's kind of like the way I kind of view it or I check my yeah. sleep and like make sure my sleep is going okay, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but other than that, like for me, one of the big things that I found myself doing is is like over-assuming sleep, right? Because like all of these are so intertwined. Yeah. And so when I started tracking my sleep, I was kind of like, oh yeah, I probably get like around se- seven hours of sleep like everyone is supposed to get, right? In reality, it was probably closer to like six, six and a half. Yeah. It's probably more the national average in general. And I'm like, wow, this is, you know, it's like where the data thing, right? Where you're scared of your own data. And you're like, well, now it's, it's right there in plain, plain as day. And now you just hold yourself accountable, which I think is kind of the power of these kind of devices in right. general, where it gives, instead of like, a, say, a doctor prescribing you say, you need to take these pills and go to sleep or, or whatever. 
having something that lets the user make the decision for themselves and say, Oh, wait, like if I do that, you know, you create the feedback loop for yourself. Yeah. And, and I think it also provides you information on, on where things can, where you can improve, right? Like I think, you know, a lot of folks don't have problem with spending time in bed. They're spending plenty of time in bed, but they're not getting quality sleep. Right. Um, other folks might struggle with, you know, regularity, right. When they go to bed and when they wake up, which we know is, is like, 100% correlated to cognitive and physical functioning, right? Like when you're, when you're, you know, when your circadian rhythm is, is just, you know, deregulated, like all sorts of bad things are, you know, end up happening internally. So, you know, regulating and stabilizing your kind of sleep-wake timing is really core. So being able to track these things just gives you information on, on where you need to spend your effort, right? In yeah. terms of improving. So I think for me, like my time in bed has always been, you know, hasn't, really been too much of an issue. Mm -hmm. It was once I started quantifying, I realized, wow, I'm actually like not really getting a whole lot of REM or slow of sleep. And oh, then you realize, okay. wow, you know, you, you actually need to be spending almost half the time that you're in bed in these deeper stages in order to fully, you know, restore physically and mentally. So that's what I started working on. I'm like, okay, yeah. what are the behaviors that are most associated with quality sleep? Well, you know what? those behaviors start the moment you wake up, right? Like, and, and are they going to, you know, help you get into these deeper stages of sleep or are not going to help you? And, and I think that principle of non-neutrality is, is one that is always floating in the back of my head as it relates to performance. Yeah. There's just, you know, there's, there's not a lot of neutral actions, right? So it's either you're going to make choices that are going to upgrade your health and wellness and in this case are, are going to support sleep or are not, right? And, you know, some of those behaviors obviously alcohol consumption close to bed is going to crush your deeper stages of sleep, your restorative sleep, you know, allowing negative stress to accumulate throughout the day. And then there's a whole host of environmental factors related to sleep that, you know, can cause fragmentation if you're not, you know, dark, you know, if you don't have a dark room, dark, cold, quiet, you know, if you're not checking those boxes that can interfere. But yeah, I think it looking at, you know, using the information and the data as a way to inform how you approach um, your day, I think is really where a lot of this, a lot of the power is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And like, for one of the things like you brought up deep sleep as like a huge impact on, you know, restorative sleep. Cause I, I do think yeah. that that's a really important distinction to make. And I think it's one that's being added now because of devices like this, where before a lot of the sleep stuff was all about get eight hours of sleep. Right. And, and, and that's still good because we're not sleeping enough, but there's also that part that's the quality of sleep. You know, it's like quality yeah. over quantity, like anything else. And you want to, you don't want to have to spend like now I only really need to spend, I used to have to spend like almost eight and a half hours in, in bed in order to, to meet, to get that quality sleep. But now I only need to spend about seven hour, you know, somewhere between seven hours and 24 minutes, seven hours and 42 minutes. Like literally that's like how I know my, um, which is sick, but I, I get it. But, but basically I know that's how much time I need to generally spend in bed in order to achieve half of, of that time frame in the deeper stages of sleep. Yeah. So, you know, so, so basically, you know, three and a half, almost four hours of the time that I'm in bed are in these deeper stages of sleep. And a lot of that has stemmed from just stabilizing my sleep wake timing. My, wow. my biggest behavior change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that I really worked on and, you know, Dr. Matthew Walker is a huge force in this space. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He's so amazing. And you know, he, he, he gave the best example I thought about like sleep consistency or like what the average person does about to their sleep consistency. And it's like, if you Monday through Friday, you go to work and you wake up at say seven every day, 
and then your weekend you you stay up until you know two three in the morning it's like you're yeah. shifting your body circadian rhythm two time zones if you if you live in uh new york for an example yeah. and you're shifting all the way to california time for the weekend and then monday morning it's like bam right back into you know <laughs> new york time yeah. and i'm just like oh wow that's a really good way of putting it totally and we see this play out on the data you know where sleep consistency during the week is is pretty stable and then the weekend it just all falls to hell and you know and this is you know we we obviously work with a ton of you know professional and collegiate athletes and tactical athletes and we saw this play out and and what was great is, is, you know, to be able to share that data and just be like, okay, look at the consistency during the week, look at the inconsistency on the weekend, you know, how do we compromise here? Because it, it really does impact your performance levels, right? And especially for these folks who are thinking about the margins and the way that they are, like, you know, you can't really afford to, to get your circadian rhythm that far out of, out of whack, right? Because you end up um, delaying recovery and you just put so much stress on your system that would otherwise go to, you know, performance improvements, right? Like the stuff that you're doing in the weight room. And so, yeah, it, it, sleep consistency is really hundred percent like the lowest hanging fruit as it relates to high performance. Yeah. That's, in, that's so interesting because that's, that's kind of one of the first things that I think I wound up fixing was just like, no matter what day it is, you always wake up and, or go to bed around the same time. Yep. And it, it, it did, I noticed that it was just like, it was kind of like, it's like not using an alarm, I guess, so to speak. That's one of the big things that I can do now is I don't need to use an alarm to wake up. Yep. I, I found like that sweet spot where I can wake up without having to use an alarm and go to bed at the same time. And then that usually kind of keeps me from feeling like that grogginess when you first wake up, if you didn't get enough sleep or high quality enough sleep. Yep. Or our, our kind of alarm will often interrupt you when you're in a deeper phase of sleep, which, you know, will create that, you know, kind of that inertia, that groggy feeling, yeah. you know, for the first hour or so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's ideal, you know, once you get through that sleep deprivation, so once you no longer have, you know, sleep debt and you're kind of in a position where you're, you're generally meeting your sleep need. Yeah. You probably don't need an alarm clock anymore. I'm kind of at that same point where, you know, I, I pretty much wake up at, 530. I mean, the birds have been just particularly loud lately um, <laughs> my window. Um, that's been helping, but, but yeah, I'm kind of at that point too, where I, I just literally just wake up now. And that's, that's a sign that you're really, your system is, is completely aligned and you know, things, you're all your clocks are kind of firing yeah. off. You know, every cell in your body has a clock, right? Like, I think we forget that we think <laughs> you can have the sleep wake clock, but no, 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 no. Every cell in your body has a clock. And, and, you know, if you can kind of stabilize this one behavior in terms of sleep-wake timing, that really informs all the other, a lot of the other clocks in your body and, and gets them firing on all cylinders. So it's, it's a really, yeah. really powerful uh, piece of the equation. I know there's a lot of data around blue light blocking glasses and stuff like that. So are those actually helpful for fixing the circadian rhythm? Because, you know, we're always bombarded by these screens and especially working from home right now, we're bombarded even more by screens because we're always stuck in meetings like this or, or anything like that. Because I use blue light blocking glasses and it, they're subtle, but I mean, if anything, they reduce eye strain. And I, I find that to be really helpful for my own sake, if I'm like wearing them post sundown, basically. Yeah. So there, you kind of need to think about it like day versus night. So amber generally at night is good. And, and studies have kind of shown that amber lenses are really helpful for like at preventing like that, that blue light from reaching the eye. So that can absolutely help, you know, with sleep efficiency and kind of actually correct disruptions to circadian rhythms and, and hundred percent in, in, you know, increase overall sleep amounts. So yeah, so there's some really good brands out there that do that well. Daytime 
you know, blocking all blue light during the day can actually hurt sleep because you're basically altering daytime signaling and cues that influence your circadian rhythms. So, you know, lenses that you wear during the day should block no more than, I think it's like 60% of the like 445 to 460 nanometer mm-hmm. range of blue light. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's definitely like cool ways to think about yeah. blue light versus, you know, day versus night and the color of the lenses and, and all that. So yeah, so that's kind of what the research says around around that. Yeah, that's interesting because I, because I remember like right when I was finishing school, there was some some of the engineering students had started doing uh, comparative analysis on lens technology, basically to see yeah. see if they actually did what they're they are advertised yes. to do. Yes, which I thought was really interesting. I'm like, ooh, because now all of this light stuff is kind of becoming a really important thing. Like my brother's a designer, and he talks about you know color temperature and stuff like that. But now yep. it's like, as the technology within even the lighting in like buildings is going to start having you know, smart color temperature stuff. So it's going to be hopefully better, but also we just kind of have to pay attention to some of this, how these different wavelengths interact with the human physiology realistically. And it's really interesting. It, it is so interesting. And I, you know, I, one of my favorite guys to follow, Dr. Andrew Huberman out of uh, Stanford, he's a neuroscientist, but he talks a ton about just sky transition too. So, oh. you know, I think we forget like how, like our body is wired to take in cues from the environment, right? So, you know, one of the the best things that we can do for sleep as well, and, and just again, aligning this, you know, kind of circadian rhythm and, and sleeping pass patterns is, is observing the sky transitions, mm. you know? And so getting that morning light, you know, a couple minutes, you know, not looking directly in the sun, but just allowing that sun, you know, the photoreceptors in your skin to kind of absorb that sunlight is really, really powerful. Yeah. Even if it's cloudy, it's totally fine, but just like getting in, in nature in the morning is really important. And then I've been making a habit, you know, the last, I guess four weeks now, just, I literally, I get my cup of tea at night and I watch the sky transition and it, I like, it's like, I literally look forward to it. Like my body like is craving it now. It's yeah. it's crazy now that I've made this a habit, but you know, watching the sky transition from, you know, day to night and, and, you know, night to day really reinforces kind of the natural circadian rhythm and sleeping patterns. So anyway, there's, there's a lot of really cool research around that, but another, I think, important behavior that we can deploy that, you know, will really help all the clocks in our body kind of sync to kind of the natural environmental cues. Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting because it's one of the things that I've noticed myself is being with being at home, I wind up going outside to work out more and yeah. it's usually around like evening time, like six, seven or so that I'm kind of like outside and I'm doing my run around the neighborhood, but it's also like when the sun's going down. So it's like this kind of like overlaying two things on top of it because yeah. I know how important the, just the vitamin D aspect for mood regulation and hormone yep. productions. Yep. You know, I was, I was not taking a fish oil for a very long time. And then I, you know, heard the study on how important just fish oil is, but then also that fish oil and vitamin D kind of have a synergistic effect. And so I wound up using both of those. I have one that has both in it and it's just a, such a powerful thing to actually help improve the quality of my health. It's, it's really interesting for me to just have that, there's the, like these little things, right? Like you don't think how much sunlight is going to affect like a mood, if anything, right? Yeah, it, it, I, I know it, it, it has a, a, a profound, you know, not just physiological uh, effect, but, but a psychological effect as well. And, and I think to your earlier point, and you started 
the podcast off saying this, like Mm -hmm. it's all intertwined, right? Like our, our behaviors, you know, the, the, what, you know, what we put into our body, how we interact with nature, you know, all this like profoundly influences our, our mental and and physical states. And, you know, to kind of think that it doesn't is, is at this point, you know, it's kind of crazy talk. So yeah, yeah, I mean, there's just a whole lot of research, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the concept that, you know, the foods that we're putting into our body and how they interact, like, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's a whole science behind that. You know, I think nutrition science is really, is kind of complicated, you know, cause it's so unique to each individual, but there's certainly, you know, high level principles that we can deploy to really help our cause. Yeah. And you just outlined a couple, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting to me, you know, the more you go down this kind of rabbit hole for, I guess, broadly speaking, well-being, it, yeah. you kind of realize that there's a lot to that's going on and interplays with each other. And I think it's just really hard in general to kind of give a one-size-fits-all. It's more of like, here's the general guideline, and then you yeah. kind of have to do the, the, the work to kind of figure out what's, you know, happening in your own life. And, yeah. and also understand too, I think one of the biggest things I think people have to understand is that this isn't going to be like, you put these habits in place now, and then, you know, three years from now, you're still going to be on top of them. It's like, your life is going to change and, and how you act, interact with your routine is going to change too. And so you don't have to come back and look, be like, okay, you know, six months ago, here's the habits that I was doing. Maybe I was reading in bed or, or you know, meditating more often, whatever it is, right? And and being able to look back on that and be like, okay, here's what I was doing and it was working really well. Maybe I need to get back to that now. Yeah, it's such a good point like that. You know, I, I always would say to my students and my student athletes, you know, performance is very much a work ethic, you know? Yeah. And I always define, I know people have different, you know, definitions for, de- you know, the performance. I, I would kind of always think about it as, you know, you're the capacity of an individual kind of to intentionally behave at a level equal to their physical, mental, and emotional potential. That was kind of the the working definition for me. But, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's just number one, being aware of the factors that actually influence your performance. So, mm-hmm. you know, to your point earlier, there's a set of principles, right, that are going to affect human beings just because, you know, we're all kind of built similarly. That said, you know, what works for each individual is going to take you know, some time to, to figure out. And I think that's where data can be really helpful. You know, I have a pretty well-structured bedtime routine because I, I, I've been doing this for so long and I've right. been inside my data. I know it works and I know, and I definitely know what doesn't work. So it's up to me to, to make that choice in terms of, Hey, if I want to sleep well tonight, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I know I just have a choice. Right. Um, and I know what foods interact really well with me. I, I really can't tolerate sugar, but you know, do I love a Sour Patch Kid and chocolate? Of course I do, you know, but I just know that it, it doesn't, you know, doesn't jam well with my system, right? Like yeah. I, I just don't tolerate it. So it's just a matter of like, you know, just being, you know, building that awareness. I think data can help amplify awareness, somatic awareness. Like, you know, I think it gives you have a feel, right? Like when you start to kind of see these correlations in, in the data, you you just can eliminate stuff that isn't upgrading, right? And, and then build it in the stuff, to your point, it's a choice. You know, you build in the stuff and you keep the stuff that you know really works for you. And and that's where, you know, you can use the data to see, all right, if I'm getting 
if, if I see this downward trend in my heart rate variability, for example, I see an increase in my resting heart rate. Okay. What, what's going on? You know, and you can kind of go through the factors, physiological and psychological that you know are most influential on health and wellness and, and kind of start to tackle it from there. So anyway, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I totally, that's exactly how I think about it. It's, it's a really interesting point. And it's one of the things that I just kind of, I tend to view most, almost anything as an iterative process. And this mm -hmm. is like no other iterative process, but it, the reason I, I think I've latched onto it so much is that it, it's this iterative process that the more you do it, the better you get at just about anything else. You know, it's like the better you get at being a human being on this planet. And <laughs> the domino effect. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's weird because it's like people notice around you like when, when you kind of start lining these things up, it's like you, you're like synchronizing with yourself. When you get put in a stressful situation, you're able to kind of not react that with like a knee jerk reaction of like, when someone's tired, you're just going to lash out to someone because you're just grumpy. It's just kind of the nature yeah. of the beast or, or anything like that. And I, and so by doing a lot of these things, and it also like, even for me, it's like getting into mindfulness or meditation. Like I yeah. would never done that unless there was like, you know, just overlaying the data part of it makes it be like, oh, wow, here's this thing. And now you can understand why it's useful. Totally. I, you know, I, I think that that, you know, I've always just being inside high performance environments, you know, both now more kind of in a consultancy type of role. And then when yeah. I was trying to drive performance outcomes in my own environment, just, I think that the recognizing that, you know, everything has a, every behavior will have a domino effect. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, when you make a change to one behavior, it's going to activate a chain reaction and cause a shift in related behaviors, right? Yeah. I think James Clear talks about this so well, you know, when he talks about domino effect. And and I think that just the sooner we're aware of that, like the more we can really drive like our, you know, how we, you know, how we how we feel and 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 you know just our overall kind of health and wellness. It reminds me of so I do intermittent fasting, I do about 14 hours a day. And one of the main drivers, like, I don't have, I'm not overweight. I don't do it for performance really, but I do it out of like, it, the, one of the main reasons I do is that, you know, humans are incentive drivers. Like yeah. if we're incentivized to do something, then, then we'll, we'll keep doing something or we won't do something. And one of the huge problems that I had is I would get like hungry late at night around like nine 30 yeah. or so. And I would yeah. eat something late and it didn't have to even be a lot. I would just be like maybe a snack or something like a, you know, a couple hundred calories. Yep. But what I found up noticing is that over time, that would drive up my resting heart rate when I slept because your body's digesting food, even that little bit, <laughs> and it would make for less quality of sleep. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to start intermittent fasting and do most of my intermittent fasting while I'm sleeping and kind of put my like cutoff time at like 8.30 every day so that I'm not like, so I can just tell myself I don't eat after this time. So that yep. keeps me from doing two things, eating and drinking, because those are like the two like worst things you can do, especially late at night, right before bed to improve quality of sleep. <laughs> no question. Yeah, I, we definitely, you know, a lot of folks see that in the, in the data, you know, just everyone's insulin response is going to be a little bit different. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you're asking just principally, when you're asking your body to do two or two different things, like you confuse it. Right. Yeah. So I, I think, it, I think when you think about it, like at the highest level, it's this concept of auto-regulation, right? You want to create a set of behaviors that doesn't confuse the fuck out of your system, right? Like, you know, you just, you want to try to like, keep, like allow your system to do what it's like, what it wants to do. Right. If you want yeah. it to recover, right. And if you want to use all of your resources toward recovery, don't ask it to digest food too. 
yeah. right? Uh, because you have to be in a parasympathetic state in order to digest food. But if you're, if you want your resources to go toward recovery and rejuvenation, don't also ask it to digest food, right? So it's like we start, we have to start to think, I think a little yeah. bit more clearly uh, about what, what are the demands of, of my system? What am I asking it to do? What do I need it to do right now? And making yeah. sure the behaviors line up with that. That's right? such a cool, I love, that's such a cool idea. I didn't even think about that because it's like, <laughs> you're trying to like at that time of night, just to keep the sleep example, you're trying to get your body to go to sleep, but then you eat something. And so you're not, like, now you're like trying to push it into digest mode. And it's like, I can't right? do both, dude. Come on. <laughs> I know. And I'm telling you like everyone and I, you know, people are like, I really want to like enhance my recovery. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. go to bed and wake up at the same time. And then don't eat a huge meal before bed. Right. Cause you, you're going to divert resources that are, that you would want to go to recovery and re regeneration toward digestion. You're missing like half of the time. Right. But you need to figure out too, like, okay, how do I not, I, you don't want to be hungry either when you sleep. So, you know, eating foods that are very, you know, super easy to digest is key, right? Like you, you, you want to make sure that your, you know, casein protein, I think is really good that slow release, you know, amino acids and, and is not going to put a lot of demands on your system in terms of digestion. So there's a lot of like little things that you can yeah. do to prevent being hungry. But I think a lot of it too, is what you're used to. Like same with me. Like I, I literally, I really try to stop eating after 6.30. I don't eat a thing. You know, I just have a bit of tea and I might put a little cream in there. You yeah. know, that kind of seems to help or just a little bit of MCT oil or something. But yeah, but generally speaking, I'm just used to it. And yeah, and, and I think that's that's why my HRV is, you know, pretty high from, you know, from my relative, my base. I think that's what helped it improve, you know, over time. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting for me too. Like, I, I do have a quick question on magnesium because there's a lot of talk around like magnesium and maybe even zinc sometimes before bed or like for improved quality of sleep. And I, I personally take MagMind by uh, Jaro, which is yep. a specific formulation of magnesium that's supposed to interact or pass through the blood blade barrier, if I'm getting that correct, and okay. uh, has some nootropic qualities. Is there actually research backing this stuff up? Well, I, I think as it relates to magnesium specifically, like it's not soporifics, like it's not going to make you feel sleepy. Yeah. I think where magnesium can be really helpful is that it um, does, I think, I think there's been shown that it does reduce some anxiety. And I think generally most folks, especially if you exercise a fair amount, a lot of athletes have, do have magnesium deficiency. So supplementing can be, can be good. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm not a doctor obviously, but right, yeah. I do think you can, you can definitely take too much magnesium and it can have a, a quite a deleterious effect on, on kind of your health. So mm -hmm. I think similar to iron, you know, you just want to be, make sure you've got the right dosage, but I think timing, honestly, like, I, I don't know that there's enough kind of research out there on, on timing, you know, and, and kind of, I, I, it does interact, you know, with like, you, you definitely would if you're taking an antibiotic, for example, and, you know, I feel bad for folks that have to take antibiotic because it just like crushes your gut yeah. like biome, but you know, you definitely don't want to have magnesium within a four hour window of, of an antibiotic. So you do have to be careful with, with magnesium in, in terms, and there's quite a few considerations I think that you need to think about to, to ensure that you're getting the right dosage, number one, and that you're, it's interacting with other things that you're taking and, and that you're, you know, have realistic expectations of what it can really do. Yeah. Uh, I was just curious if you had any newer studies or just in general, because I, I, you hear a lot about, you know, 
silver bullets in the, in this world of like, just do these things and you'll feel better. And, you know, my knee jerk reaction is like, how true is that? So it's just interesting to hear if there's any foundational things. And obviously a lot of these studies, there's just not enough data yet, especially with. Yeah. I think the N is like, usually is like pretty small and that, and a lot of the research that's done and it's, you know, on like actually your cohort, male, white. So, but yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I think you have to just be really careful, like when looking at research, you know, and, and, taking in and, and I think recognizing like all of the, the factors that like associated factors that could influence like the efficacy of, of anything that you're doing, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So we've been doing this for a little while and I know you have some new studies that you wanted to share here on from whoop and that have been wrapping up. So we, I thought we could switch now into the research that you've been doing with whoop and just even like yeah. the last year, because I know there's been a lot. <laughs> yeah, we've done, well, we, you know, we had a, a validation study that was published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. So that yeah. was really exciting. University of Arizona did, did that study. And, and one of the cool things, they were able to actually validate respiratory rate, uh, which was kind of like just a happy find yeah. because what we've been seeing, you know, in the data, the WHOOP data for folks who have reported being COVID positive, we've seen that, you know, while resting heart rate and heart rate variability are kind of non-specific markers in that, you know, if you have the flu or other non-COVID sickness, you know, they're going to, your heart rate variability is going to be low, resting heart rate is going to be high. If you have COVID, your resting heart rate is going to be high, high and your heart rate variability is going to be low. But if you have, but if you have COVID specifically, your respiratory rate is profoundly affected in folks who report that they have COVID-19 because it's what's cool about respiratory rates. It's, it's actually like a really stable metric. So if you have non-COVID sickness, your respiratory rate's not going to change, right? It's only in the presence of a lower respiratory uh, tract infection where your respiratory rate will, will change, right? So, you know, in, in kind of where there's structural like pulmonary changes. So, so respiratory rates kind of been like this canary in the coal mine as it relates to COVID-19. So we've been doing a lot of research centered around that. You know, we're about to, I can't reveal who it's with, but we're about to launch a really uh, pretty big study with 500 healthcare workers in a hospital system. Yeah. So it will be kind of looking at just health you know, healthcare physiology just generally. And then alongside for those folks who do um, test positive for for COVID nineteen, being able to kind of look at the course of the disease and study that. So really in depth, you know, kind of testing that these folks will go through to just again try to understand the disease a bit better. And then the other piece of research related to COVID that we're looking at is just this kind of concept of resilience. You know, what does that profile look like of a person who gets it versus doesn't? You know, doesn't get it. You know, what is uh, a, a person who does get it? You know, what how much time are they spending in slow sleep? Like how consistent is their sleep? You know, what does their, what are their exercise habits? You know, when we look at all the journal features that all the journal questions that we have within the Whoop platform, you know, what are, what are their behaviors look like? Are they, you know, are they, are they doing intermittent fasting? I mean, we, there's so much metadata, right. To be able to dig in and ask some, some cool questions about, you know, what is resilience? What are the behaviors that contribute to resilience? So I think to me, that's one of the, one of the most exciting, that's, I'm super excited about that, those yeah. findings. But yeah, I, I mean, I think these are all like really innovative approaches. And then we just started a study with Duke uh, Medical University, looking at the cardiometabolic aspect of recovery in COVID patients. Cool. So we've got, a, I think they've got about you know, 19 folks in, in ICU right now. And basically when they come out, we'll be putting whoop 
on, on these patients. And as they go home, they'll also have a cardiometabolic cart. So we'll be able to look at all sorts of metrics alongside, you know, the metrics that we're tracking and, and, you know, kind of see, see what we see in yeah, terms right. of recovery, because that's an aspect of the disease that we don't know a whole lot about. No, no one knows anything about, right? So we're going to be investigating that. And then, so that's kind of all the COVID related research. And then we've got some other research um, looking at kind of uh, classification of breathing protocols. I was talking about nasal breathing. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, this is with an institution out in California and we're really close to being able to kind of announce that. But yeah, very excited to kind of look at different types of diaphragmic breathing and how that influences our sleep. So we'll kind of look at breathing as it relates specifically to sleep and hopefully be able to provide insight to folks on you know what breathing protocols are most uh, effective to and most yeah effective in, in helping you get the best night's sleep. Wow, lots, lots of different yeah. things happening that just you know just by measuring you can now are starting to build like a foundation of like here's what we can tell by just measuring it. You know, and like yeah. one of the one of the ones that I thought was super interesting that went just live on the journal. So we kind of mentioned a couple of times, but just for an overview for everybody, is the journal in Whoop is every morning you can wake up and you kind of say yes or no, or, and then add a little bit of granularity to yep. activities you did the previous day. So it could be, you know, sleeping late, screen device, reading it late before bed, thing, things like that. So just to yep. kind of personal tracking what you did to affect your recovery or, or not. And one of the things you guys added was, you know, the psychological purpose, you know, yep. things like that. And I, I thought that was super interesting because you don't see that kind of come out except out of like study stuff and to have like, yeah device that's tracking it. I, I think yeah. it's, it's super interesting for me because it, it reminds me of uh, Flourish, the positive psychology. Yep. So it's, it's, it feels like right in line with that. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, that's, yeah, that's, so that's, my background is in psychology. So I've been, I've been kind of pushing for this for four years to, to, because we track, again, I think it's this concept of, you know, psychophysiology, right? Like they're, they're, they're 100% intertwined, right? And yeah. Heart rate variability is not only a great estimator of your physical readiness, but it's also an unbelievable estimator of your psychological readiness, right? So, and, and I think the reason why I chose, you know, purpose, efficacy, and control is because those are the three most important, most three most impactful psychological needs that we have as human beings. And this is grounded in tons of research by, you know, Ryan and Desi and, you know, all the positive like psychologists and self-determination yeah. theory and, and all of that. So it, it has its roots in science, but yeah, I think, you know, being able to reflect daily on, and this is the origin when I was at Princeton University, you know, coaching and teaching, you know, this is, was part of the kind of performance education was really understanding the influence that these needs have in our, in our life and being able to create a framework to account for those needs on the daily, right? So, you know, what, what does my level of control look like? Right. Like, you know, and I think this is, you know, an interesting time, right? We kind of feel this weird sense of control and then this weird sense of not having control and like understanding really quickly. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about this before I went live. I think just the, how amplified, you know, these, I think the emotions kind of are right now because there's this weird quiet and then there's this kind of noise in our mind, you know, like, I think it's just, everything feels like quite acute now. So it's, it's just this weird time, but reflecting on your level of control, I think is, is an understanding and understanding how you interact with that across a day, I think is really 
is really important awareness. And then efficacy, you know, do I have the skills and resources to do what's asked of me, you know, as a, as a mom, as a, as a partner, as, you know, a professional, you know, I, I think when we don't have resources and skills to do what's asked of us, asked of us, we, we immediately start to feel this really strong level of dissonance, you know, this kind of tension inside that I want to contribute value. I want to, you know, be effective in, in my role, but I don't feel like I have the knowledge to do it. And again, just being aware of that dynamic is really, really powerful to kind of help you take control of your performance and understand how and, and when to ask for help. And the third piece is purpose, right? Like, you know, what is your level of, you know, do you feel like you're, you know, living your, you know, your, your values, right? Like, yeah. So understanding number one, you know, what is it that you value and understanding that's going to change a little bit as you, as you grow and evolve, but, you know, taking stock of that really, I think, you know, weekly and, and really exposing yourself to the things that you care about and making sure that, you know, when you think about your day, you want 90% of your tasks to drive toward your purpose. Right. And we were talking about this too, before we get on, like, I, you know, this is an exercise that I, I put in front of my students and my student athletes at Princeton, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you want it to be 90, 10, you know, like I, I know the 80, 20, you know, 90, 10, right. Like, you yeah. know, if you say, you know, innovation, um, is, is, and peace are, are two of the things that you value, for example, is two of my values. You know, what am I doing every day that leads me, like that enables me to kind of scratch this itch of innovation, right? Like a lot of it is the research that I'm able to do with partners yeah. and, and asking questions of performance and, and science. And, you know, these are, this is how I want to spend my time, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that the tasks across the day are an outlet for what I say I care about. You know, I care about, you know, peace, right? Like, which is really just, you know, feeling uh, a level of, of contentment that I'm, I'm not, you know, kind of trying to fill a void of, 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 of sorts. And, you know, what, what does that mean about my behaviors throughout the day? You know, so yeah, I think the whole concept behind these and putting these into the journal was really to try to help folks understand, you know, that it's, you, you just, you want to try to create a, an infrastructure that allows you to attend to these needs, right? Yeah. It, I, I totally agree with it 100%. And I mean, the re one of the big reasons I even do this is because of how much of that type of meaning frameworking that I've done personally has given me the ability to do this podcast. And yeah. by extension, you know, providing things for other people, you know, it's all about providing information for other people to live better at the end of the day. But it's also like this really deep internal thing. But it, to find out what that is, it's almost like you got to look at those questions and be like, what does that really mean? Because like, yeah. because they do feel like out of reach to some degree, like when, you know, a psychologist can just say them and, you know, it doesn't really hit you the right way. But like when you, you have to kind of sit down with a notebook and even if you stare at that page for an hour and nothing gets written down, you kind of have to really just ask yourself, like, what do I want to do? Like, what's the, you know, if, if everything goes perfect, right? Like how far could you go? you know, right. throw the dart in the sand somewhere far, like off in the distance and say, what, what could my life be like if everything I wanted to do in my twenties <laughs> yeah. you know, happens? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's to your point earlier, like, I think we often, like, we don't know where to start. Right. And, and I think that's where a lot of the research that's been done kind of gives us a platform, the stuff that stood the test of time, like efficacy, purpose, and control, you know, those are three needs that just bubble to the surface over and over and over again, over, you know, the past 70 years, right? So of, of like research. So, okay, we know these are important. So, 
if folks just literally focus on those three things and, and, and ref, to your point, you know, get a pad and pen, you know, out and, and really start to reflect on what those mean. And then, you know, kind of building, you know, behaviors and, and habits that enable you to fulfill those needs, then all of a sudden, like life kind of corrects itself, right? Like, you, you know, you start to just feel like you have some direction and you have purpose and you have some control. And, you know, those are psychological needs that are, are being met on the, on the daily and, you know, things start to, to feel pretty good. And you just minimize that, that tension internally that can, yeah. that can manifest when we're not really certain what we should be focused on. And I guess that's the opportunity here is, is really using research on the physiological side, on the psychological side to really understand, you know, what are the things that we just need to focus on, right? That are really going to move the needle um, for me and then just making sure it's built in. That's awesome. And, you know, normally I ask the question is like, how would you, you know, provide advice for a young person who's, you know, just starting out in the real world? But I think we just nailed it with (laughs) talking about just those, you know, three components of the psychological meaning framework. And it's, just an honor for me to be able to have a conversation with you to talk about, you know, all of the cutting edge science in this space and to just highlight more of it because, you know, this is relatively new for the most part and, and to get yeah. it out to more people, I think is even fun to see where the research is headed with more people seeing how it actually interacts with patients and how they can improve the quality of their life too is really exciting to me. Yeah. I, I definitely think that just building awareness and having conversations and, you know, getting folks to kind of ask questions of their behaviors and, and how it's it's contributing to, you know, their overall kind of goal as and mission in life. Like, I, I think those are, are really, I think the extent that we, you know, can use kind of research to, to knit that together and to, to center people's focus, I think is, yeah, it's really valuable. Thank you so much. And so just as a closing thing, how can people reach you across the internet? Oh, okay. So I'm on LinkedIn and I definitely post stuff there and just Kristen Holmes. Um, and then on joined Instagram about a month ago, <laughs> so still trying to find my way. So forgive me for any weird things you see on there. I'm still learning, but I guess, what is that called? My like name, like my username, I guess would be the right way. My username. Yep. I'm looking it up right now. It is Kristen underscore Holmes 2126. And I post all sorts of, you know, performance related things and, you know, some random personal shit every now and again. And I think that's it that I I can't go into the Twitter black hole. I, I, I I get it. (laughs) I I tried like a couple years ago and I was like, whoa, this is like deep and dark. I I can't do it. Yeah. I, I, I really had, had never done social media before until like February. So yeah. Mm -hmm kind of new at it. I think to your point, you know, like I just, yeah, I just didn't know how to interact with it, but, but yeah, it's a great platform to educate folks and, yeah. and uh, you know, put ideas out there and, and, and connect with other people who are really interested in the I, same I think Instagram thing, so. is a great platform right now. It seems to have the most positive community, or at least if you build it in the way that yeah. you use it. And it's a lot of, it, it's a lot of the people that I've been able to communicate through my podcast and connect to even like you so it's like, yeah no <laughs> yeah I mean I love the stuff that you're putting out it's so good and yeah and like you know just Brian McKenzie and and yes. you know Dave you know just Dave Asprey and Dr. Huberman and you know just all these like just amazing people kind of sharing their thoughts and ideas and yeah it's, um, I've, I already feel like I've learned a lot and yeah it's it's been yeah it's been cool it's awesome and I really appreciate it once again and yeah. if- 
you know, when more research comes down the road, I'm, I'm happy to do a round two and we can do a wrapped up and just see where this, you know, keeps going as we keep refining it. So. Yeah. Yeah. As we finalize, like, or as we kind of dig into the healthcare space, I think that could be interesting to, to talk about what we find. Absolutely. You know, those, that cohort, cause that's, that's going to be, that's a really understudied population that obviously high stakes and a, a lot happening. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Love back on. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I'll have show notes for everything so people can find links to both Whoop and to where they can connect with you. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Feeding Curiosity. I hope you all learned something or at least got you thinking. If you want to dive in deeper, please head over to feedingcuriosity.net to find related links or just more podcasts and blogs that we posted there. On top of this, please consider subscribing to our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings on the website. Thank you all for joining me one more time and we'll catch you all in the next episode.